Welcome back to Books at Bedtime. I'm your host, Tyler, and today we're continuing on with The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. Chapter 17 Interlude Autumn Gvoth held out a hand to Chronicler, then turned to his student, frowning. Stop looking at me like that, Bast. Bast looked close to tears. Oh, Reshi, he choked out. I had no idea. Kvoth gestured as if cutting the air with the side of his hand. There's no reason you should, Bast, and no reason to make an issue out of it. But Rashi, Kvoth gave his student a severe look. What, Bast? Should I weep and tear my hair, curse Talu and his angels, beat my chest? No, that is low drama. His expression softened somewhat. I appreciate your concern, but this is just a piece of the story, not even the worst piece, and I am not telling it to garner sympathy. Kvoth pushed his chair back from the table and came to his feet. Besides, all of this happened long ago. He made a dismissive gesture. Time is the great healer, and so on. He rubbed his hands together. Now I'm going to bring in enough wood to get us through the night. There'll be a chill if I'm any judge of weather. You can get a couple loaves ready to bake while I'm out, and try to collect yourself. I refuse to tell the rest of this story with you making blubbery cow eyes at me. With that, Kvoth walked behind the bar and out through the kitchen toward the back door of the inn. Bast scrubbed roughly at his eyes and watched his master go. He's fine so long as he's busy, Bast said softly. I beg your pardon? Chronicler said reflexively. He shifted awkwardly in his seat as if he wanted to get to his feet, but couldn't think of a polite way to excuse himself. Bast gave a warm smile, his eyes a human blue again. I was so excited when I heard who you were that he was going to tell his story. His mood's been so dark lately, and there's nothing to shake him out of it. Nothing will do but sit and brood. Oh, nothing to do but sit and brood. Sorry. Um, let's see. I'm sure that remembering the good times will... Bast grimaced. I'm not saying this very well. I'm sorry for earlier. I wasn't thinking straight. N no, Chronicler stammered hastily. I'm the one. It was my fault. I I'm sorry. Bast shook his head. You were just surprised, but you only tried to bind me. His expression grew a little pained. Not that it was pleasant, mind. It feels like being kicked between your legs, but all over your body. Makes you feel sick and weak, but it's just pain. It wasn't like you'd actually wounded me. Bast looked embarrassed. I was going to do more than hurt you. I might have killed you before I even stopped to think. Before an uncomfortable silence developed, Chronicler said, Why don't we take his word that we were both suffering from blinding idiocy and leave it at that? Chronicler managed a sickly smile that was heartfelt in spite of the circumstances. Peace, he extended his hand. Peace. They shook hands with much more genuine warmth than they had earlier. As Bast reached across the table, his sleeve pulled back to reveal a bruise blossoming around his wrist. Bast self-consciously pulled his cuff back into place. From when he grabbed me, he said quickly. He's stronger than he looks. Don't mention it to him. He'll only feel bad. Kvoth emerged from the kitchen and shut the door behind himself, 
Looking around, he seemed surprised that it was a mild autumn afternoon rather than the springtime forest of his story. He lifted the handles of a flat-bottomed barrow and trundled it out into the woods behind the inn, his feet crunching in the fallen leaves. Not too far into the trees was the winter's wood supply. Cord on cord of oak and ash were stacked to make tall, crooked walls between the trunks of trees. Kvoth tossed two pieces of firewood into the wheelbarrow, where they struck the bottom like a muted drum. Another two followed them. His motions were precise, his face blank, his eyes far away. As he continued to load the barrow, he moved slower and slower, like a machine winding down. Eventually he stopped completely and stood for a long minute, still as stone. Only then did his composure break. And even with no one there to see, he hid his face in his hands and wept quietly, his body racked with wave on wave of heavy, silent sobs. I suppose not even Quoth Bloodless, you see, is immune to the emotion, the emotion that comes from losing one's pain. A hard thing to remember. And so often how men deal with their emotions. What? No, it was a long time ago. I'm fine. And then you wait until you're alone. To let it happen. Men are often protective of their emotions more so than their bodies. Emotions are private things. The way a woman's body is private to her. The same sort of feeling of safety is required for men to share their emotions that women need to have sex. Well, not, I suppose not just to have sex, but to make love, which is the more intimate kind. There has to be a sense of safety that it isn't going to be spread around town or used against you. So it makes sense that Kvothe wouldn't cry in front of his student or the person who he just met, Devin Lucky's the chronicler. I feel for him. I also really feel that slowing down thing. If you have any friends with depression, or if you have depression, you probably have seen this to some extent. Slowing down feels like everything has to happen by being pushed through mud. It's 18. Roads to safe places. Perhaps the greatest faculty our minds possess 
is the ability to cope with pain. Classic thinking teaches us of the four doors of the mind, which everyone moves through according to their need. First is the door of sleep. Sleep offers us a retreat from the world and all its pain. Sleep marks passing time, giving us distance from the things that have hurt us. When a person is wounded, they will often fall unconscious. Similarly, someone who hears traumatic news will often swoon or faint. This is the mind's way of protecting itself from pain by stepping through the first door. Second is the door of forgetting. Some wounds are too deep to heal or too deep to heal quickly. In addition, many memories are simply painful and there is no healing to be done. There's the saying, time heals all wounds, is false. Time heals most wounds. The rest are hidden behind this door. Third is the door of madness. There are times when the mind is dealt such a blow it hides itself in insanity. While this may not seem beneficial, it is. There are times when reality is nothing but pain, and to escape that pain the mind must leave reality behind. Last is the door of death. The final resort, nothing can hurt us after we are dead. Or so we have been told. After my family was killed, I wandered deep into the forest and slept. My body demanded it, and my mind used the first door to dull the pain. The wound was covered until the proper time for healing could come. In self-defense, a good portion of my mind simply stopped working. Went to sleep, if you will. While my mind slept, many of the painful parts of the previous day were ushered through the second door. Not completely, I did not forget what had happened. But the memory was dulled, as if seen through thick gauze. If I wanted to, I could have brought to memory the faces of the dead, the memories of the man with black eyes, but I did not want to remember. I pushed those thoughts away and let them gather dust in a seldom-used corner of my mind. I dreamed, not of blood, glassy eyes, and the smell of burning hair, but of gentler things. And slowly, the wound began to grow numb. I dreamed I was walking through the forest with plain-faced Lackleth, the woodsman who had traveled with our troop when I was younger. He walked silently through the underbrush while I kicked up more noise than a wounded ox dragging an overturned cart. After a long period of comfortable silence, I stopped to look at a plant. He came quietly up behind me. Sagebeard, he said. You can tell by the edge. Pardon me. Ah, here, I got it. One moment. Sorry about that. Okay, let's see. Where was that? Ah, let's see. He reached past me and gently stroked the appropriate part of the leaf. It did look like a beard. I nodded. This is willow. You can chew the bark to lessen pains. It was bitter and slightly gritty. This is itch root. Don't touch the leaves. I didn't. This is baneberry. The small fruits are safe to eat when red, but never when shading from green to yellow to orange. This is how you set your feet when you want to walk silently. It made my calves ache. This is how you part the brush quietly, leaving no sign of your passing. This is where you find the dry wood. This is how you keep the rain off when you don't have canvas. This is pater root. You can eat it, but it tastes bad. These, he gestured, straight rod, orange stripe, never eat them. 
the one with little knobs on its burrow. You should, you should only eat it if you have just eaten something like straight rod. It will make you kick up whatever's in your stomach. This is how you set a snare that won't kill a rabbit. This snare will. He looped the string first one way, then another. As I watched his hands manipulate the string, I realized it was no longer Lackleth, but Abanthe. We were riding in the wagon, and he was teaching me how to tie sailor's knots. Knots are interesting things, Ben, had, uh, ben said as he worked. The knot will either be the strongest or the weakest part of the rope. It depends on, entirely on how well one makes the binding. He held up his hands, showing me an impossibly complex pattern spread between his fingers. His eyes glit glittered. Any questions? Any questions, my father said. He had stopped. We had stopped early for the day because of a greystone. He sat turning his lute and was finally going to play his song for my mother and me. Oh, he, he sat tuning his lute. Sorry, I think I said turning. He sat tuning his lute and was finally going to play his song for my mother and me. We had been waiting so long. Are there any questions? He repeated as he sat with his back against the great gray stone. Why do we stop at the waystones? Tradition, mostly, but some people say they marked old roads. My father's voice changed and became Ben's voice. Safe roads, sometimes roads to safe places, sometimes safe roads leaning, leading into danger. Ben held one hand out to it as if feeling the warmth of a fire. But there is a power in them. Only a fool would deny that. Then Ben was no longer there. And there was not uh, one standing stone, but many, more than I had ever seen in one place before. They formed a double circle around me. One stone was set across the top of two others, forming a huge arch with thick shadow underneath. I reached out to touch it and awoke. My mind had covered a fresh pain with the names of a hundred roots and berries, four ways to light a fire, nine snares made from nothing but a sapling and string, and where to find fresh water. I thought very little on the other matter of the dream. Ben had never taught me sailor's knots. My father had never finished <clears throat> my father had never finished his song. I took inventory of what I had with me a canvas sack, a small knife, a ball of string, some wax, a copper penny, two iron shims, and rhetoric and logic, the book Ben had given me. Aside from my clothes and my father's loot, I had nothing else. I set out looking for drinking water. Water comes first, Lackleth had told me. Anything else you can do for you can do without for days. I considered the lay of the land and followed some animal trails. By the time I found a small spring fed pool nestled among some birch trees, I could see the sky purpling into dusk behind the trees. I was terribly thirsty, but caution won out and I took only a small drink. Next, I collected dry wood from the hollows of trees and under canopies. I set a simple snare. I hunted for and found several stalks of mother leaf and spread the sap onto my fingers, where they were bloody and torn. The stinging helped distract me from remembering how I had hurt them. Waiting for the sap to dry, I took my first casual look around. Oaks and birches crowded each other for space. Their trunks made patterns of alternating light and dark beneath the canopy of branches. A small rivulet of rain ran from the pool across some rocks and away to the east. 
It may have been beautiful, but I didn't notice. I couldn't notice. To me, the trees were shelter, and the undergrowth a source of nourishment, and the pool reflecting moonlight only reminded me of my thirst. There was also a great rectangular stone lying on its side near the pool. A few days earlier I would have recognized it as a gray stone. Now I saw it as an efficient windbreak, something to put my back against as I slept. Through the canopy I saw the stars were out. That meant it had been several hours since I had tried the water. Since it hadn't made me sick, I decided it must be safe and took a long drink. Rather than refreshing me, all my drink did was make me aware of how hungry I was. I sat on the stone by the edge of the pool. I stripped the leaves from the stalks of mother leaf and ate one. It was rough, papery, and bitter. I ate the rest, but it didn't help. I took another drink of water, then lay down to sleep, not caring that the stone was cold and hard, or at least pretending not to care. I woke, took a drink, and went to check the snare I had set. I was surprised to find a rabbit already struggling against the cord. I took out my small knife and remembered how Lackleth had shown me to dress a rabbit. Then I thought of the blood and how it would feel on my hands. I felt sick and vomited. I cut loose the rabbit and walked back to the pool. I took another drink of water and sat on the stone. I felt a little light-headed and wondered if it was from the hunger. After a moment my head cleared and I chided myself for my foolishness. I found some shelf fungus growing on a dead tree and ate it after washing it in the pool. It was gritty and tasted like dirt. I ate all I could find. I set a new snare, one that would kill. Then, smelling rain in the air, I returned to the graystone to make a shelter for my loot. 19. Fingers and Strings Let's see how long is this one? Not terribly long. Twenty is a bit longer than nineteen. We'll see how we're doing on time after nineteen. Fingers and strings. In the beginning, I was almost like an automaton, thoughtlessly performing the actions that would keep me alive. I ate the second rabbit I caught and the third. I found a patch of wild strawberries. I dug for roots. By the end of the fourth day, I had everything I needed to survive a stone-lined fire pit, a shelter for my loot. I had even assembled a small stockpile of foodstuffs I could fall back on in case of an emergency. I also had one thing I did not need, time. After I had taken care of immediate needs, I found I had nothing to do. I think this is when a small part of my mind started to slowly reawaken itself. Make no mistake, I was not myself. At least... I was not the same person I had been a span of days before. Everything I did, I attended to with my whole mind, leaving no part of me free for remembering. I grew thinner and more ragged. I slept in rain or sun, on soft grass, moist earth, or sharp stones with an intensity of indifference that only grief can promote. The only notice I took of my surroundings was when it rained, because then I could not bring out my lute to play, and that pained me. Of course I played. It was my only solace. By the end of the first month, my fingers had calluses hard as stones, and I could play for hours upon hours. I played and played again all of the songs I knew from memory, 
Then I played the half-remembered songs as well, filling in the forgotten parts as best I could. Eventually I could play from when I woke until the time I slept. I stopped playing the songs I knew and started inventing new ones. I had made up songs before, and I had even helped my father compose a verse or two. But now I gave it my whole attention. Some of the songs have stayed with me to this day. Soon after that I began playing... How can I describe it? I began to play something other than songs. When the sun warms the grass and the breeze cools you, it feels a certain way. I would play until I got the feeling right. I would play until it sounded like warm grass and cool breeze. I was only playing for myself, but I was a harsh audience. I remember spending nearly three whole days trying to capture wind turning a leaf. By the end of the second month, I could play things nearly as easily as I saw and felt them. Sun setting behind the clouds, bird taking a drink, dew in the bracken. Somewhere in the third month, I stopped looking outside and started looking inside for things to play. I learned to play riding in the wagon with Ben, singing with Father by the fire, watching Shandy dance, grinding leaves when it is nice outside, Mother smiling. Needless to say, playing these things hurt, but it was a hurt like tender fingers on lute strings. It bled a bit. I bled a bit and hoped that I would callous soon. Toward the end of summer, one of the strings broke broke beyond repair. I spent the better part of the day in a mute stupor, unsure of what to do. My mind was still numb and mostly asleep. I focused with a dim shadow of my usual cleverness on my problem. After realizing that I could neither make a string nor acquire a new one, I sat back down and began to learn to play with only six strings. In a span I was nearly as good with six strings as I had been with seven, Three span later, I was trying to play Waiting While It Rains when a second string broke. This time I didn't hesitate. I stripped off the useless string and started to learn again. It was midway through reaping when the third string broke. After trying for nearly half a day, I realized that three broken strings were too many. So I packed a small dull knife, half a ball of string, and Ben's book into a tattered canvas sack. Then I shouldered my father's lute and began to walk. I tried humming snow falling with the late autumn leaves, calloused fingers and a lute with four strings, but it wasn't the same as playing it. My plan was to find a road and follow it to a town. I had no idea how far I was from either, in which direction they might lie, or what their names might be. I knew I was somewhere in the southern commonwealth, but the precise location was buried, tangled up with other memories I was not eager to unearth. The weather helped me make up my mind. Cool autumn was turning to winter's chill. I knew the weather was warmer to the south, so lacking any better plan, I set the sun on my left shoulder and tried to cover as much distance as I could. The next span was an ordeal. The little food I had brought with me was soon gone, and I had to stop and forage when I was hungry. Some days I couldn't find water, and when I had When I did, I had nothing I could use to carry it. The small wagon track joined a bigger road, which joined a larger road yet. My feet chafed and blistered against the insides of my shoes. Some nights were bitter cold. 
There were inns, but aside from the occasional drink I stole from horse troughs, I gave them a wide berth. There were a few small towns as well, but I needed some place larger. Farmers have no need for lute strings. At first, whenever I heard a wagon or a horse approaching, I found myself limping off to hide by the side of the road. I had not spoken with another human since the night my family was killed. I was more akin to a wild animal than a boy of twelve. But eventually the road became too large and well-traveled. I found myself spending more time hiding than walking. I finally braved the traffic and was relieved when I was largely ignored. I had been walking for less than an hour one morning when I heard a wagon coming up behind me. The road was wide enough for two wagons to run abreast, but I moved to the grass at the edge of the road anyway. "'Hey, boy!' a rough male voice behind me yelled. I didn't turn around. "'Hello, boy!' I moved farther off the road into the grass without looking behind me. I kept my eyes on the ground beneath my feet. The wagon pulled slowly alongside me. The boy... I'm sorry, the voice bellowed twice as loud as before. Boy, boy! I looked up and saw a weathered old man squinting against the sun. He could have been anywhere from forty to seventy years old. There was a thick-shouldered, plain-faced young man sitting next to him on the wagon. I guessed they were father and son. Are you deef, boy? The old man pronounced it like deef. I shook my head. You dumb, then? I shook my head again. No. It felt, str it felt strange talking to someone. My voice sounded odd, rough, and rusty from disuse. He squinted at me. You going to the city? I nodded, not wanting to talk again. Get in, then. He nodded toward the back of the wagon. Sam won't mind pulling a little whippet like yourself. He patted the rump of his mule. It was easier to agree than run away, and the blisters on my feet were stinging from the sweat in my shoes. I moved to the back of the open cart and climbed on, pulling my loot after me. The back of the open wagon was about three-quarters full of large burlap bags. A few round, knobbly, knobby squash had spilled from an open sack and were rolling aimlessly around on the floor. The old man shook the reins, hup, and the mule grudgingly picked up its pace. I picked up a few loose squash and tucked them into the bag that had fallen open. The, farm, the old farmer gave me a smile over his shoulder. "'Thanks, boy. I'm Seth, and this here is Jake. You might want to be sitting down. A bad bump could tip you over the side.' I sat on one of the bags, tense for no good reason, not knowing what to expect. The old farmer handed the reins to his son and brought a large brown loaf of bread out of a sack that sat between the two of them. He casually tore off a large chunk, spread a thick dab of butter on it, onto it, and handed it back to me. This casual kindness made my chest ache. It had been half a year since I had eaten bread. It was soft and warm, and the butter was sweet. I saved a piece for later, tucking it into my canvas sack. After a quiet quarter of an hour, the old man turned halfway around. Do you play that thing, boy? He gestured to the loot case. I clutched it closer to my body. It's broken. Ah, he said, disappointed. I thought he was going to ask me to get off, but instead he smiled and nodded to the man beside him. We'll just have to entertain we'll just have to be entertaining you instead. He started to sing Tinker Tanner and drink a drinking song that is older than God. After a second his son joined in, and they and their rough voices made a simple harmony that set something inside of me aching as I remembered other wagons 
different songs, a half-forgotten home. Yeah, we probably have time for another chapter. <sighs> okay, okay, I'm gonna read it. Don't worry. <laughs> Twenty. Bloody hands into stinging fists. It was around noon when the wagon turned onto a new road, this one wide as a river and paved with cobbles. At first there were only a handful of travelers and a wagon or two, but to me it seemed like a great crowd after such a long time alone. We went deeper into the city, and low buildings gave way to taller shops and inns. Trees and gardens were replaced by alleys and cart vendors. The great river of a road grew clogged and choked with the flotsam of a hundred carts and pedestrians, dozens of wains and wagons, and the occasional mounted man. There was the sound of horses' hooves and people shouting, the smell of beer and sweat and garbage and tar. I wondered which city this was, and if I'd been here before, before I gritted my teeth and forced myself to think of other things. Almost there, Seth raised his voice above the din. Eventually, oh, sorry, I guess that would be, almost there, Seth raised his voice against the din. Eventually the road opened out into a market. Wagons rolled along, sorry, Wagons, wagons rolled on the cobbles with a sound like distant thunder. Voices bargained and fought. Somewhere in the distance a child was crying shrill and high. We rode aimlessly for a while until he found an empty corner in front of a bookshop. Seth stopped the wagon and I hopped out as they were stretching away um, the kinks from the road. Then, with a sort of silent agreement, I helped them unload the lumpy sacks from the back of the wagon and pile them to one side. A half an hour later, we were resting among the piled sacks. Seth looked at me, shading his eyes with a hand. What are you doing in town today, boy? I need loot strings, I said. Only then did I realize I didn't know where my father's loot was. I looked around wildly. It wasn't in the wagon where I'd left it, or leaning against the wall, or on the piles of squash. My stomach clenched until I spotted it underneath some loose burlap sacking. I walked over to it and picked it up with shaking hands. The older farmer grinned at me and held out a pair of the knobbly squash we'd been unloading. How would your mother like it if you brought home a couple of the finest orange butter squash this side of the eld? No, I... I can't, I stammered, pushing away the memory of raw fingers digging in the mud and the smell of burning hair. I, I m mean, you've already... I trailed off, clutching my loot closer to my chest and moving a couple steps away. He looked at me more closely as if seeing me for the first time. Suddenly, self-conscious, I imagined how I must look. Ragged and half-starved, I, I hugged the loot and backed farther away. The farmer's hands fell to his side and his smile faded. Ah, oh, lad, he said softly. He set the squash down, then turned back to me and spoke with a gentle seriousness. Me and Jake will be here selling until round about sundown. If you find what you're looking for by then, you'd be welcome back on the farm with us. The missus and me could you sure use an extra hand some days. You'd be more than welcome, wouldn't he, Jake? Jake was looking at me too, pity written across his honest face. Sure enough, Pa. She said so right before we left.
The old farmer continued to look at me with serious eyes. This is Seaward Square, he said, pointing at his feet. We'll be here till dark, maybe a little after. You come back if and you want a ride. His eyes turned worried. You hear me? You can come back with us. I continued to back away, step by step, not sure why I was doing it, only knowing that if I went with him I would have to explain, would have to remember. Anything was better than opening that door. No, no thank you, I stammered. You've helped so much. I'll be fine. I was jostled from behind by a man, by a m <coughs> goodness, by a man in a leather apron. Startled, startled, I turned and ran. I heard one of them call out behind me, but the crowd drowned them out. I ran, my heart heavy in my chest. Tarbine is big enough that you cannot walk from one end to the other in a single day, not even if you avoid getting lost or accosted in the tangled web of twisting streets and dead-end alleys. It was too big, actually. It was vast, immense. Seas of people, forests of buildings, roads as wide as rivers. It smelled like urine and sweat and coal, smoke and tar. If I had been in my right mind, I never would have gone there. In the fullness of time, I became lost. I took a turn too early or too late, then tried to compensate by cutting through an alley like a narrow chasm between two tall buildings. It wound like a gully carved by a river that had left to find a cleaner bed. Garbage drifted up the walls and filled the cracks between the buildings and the alcove doorways. After I had taken several turns, I caught the rancid smell of something dead. I turned a corner and staggered against a wall as pain stars blinded me. I felt rough hands grab hold of my arms. I opened my eyes to see an older boy. He was twice my size with dark hair and savage eyes. The dirt that smudged his face gave him the appearance of having a beard, making his young face strangely cruel. Two other boys jerked me away from the wall. I yelped as one of them twisted my arm. The older boy smiled at the sound and ran a hand through his hair. What are you doing here, Nalt? You lost? His grin broadened. I tried to pull away, but one of the boys twisted my wrist, and I gasped. No. I think he's lost, Pike, the boy on my right side said. The one on my left elbowed me sharply in the side of the head, and the alley tilted crazily around me. Pike laughed. I'm looking for the woodworks, I muttered, slightly stunned. Pike's expression turned murderous. His hands grabbed my shoulders. Did I ask you a question? He shouted. Did I say you could talk? He slammed his forehead into my face, and I felt a sharp crack followed by an explosion of pain. Hey, Pike, the voice seemed to come from an impossible direction. A foot nudged my loot case, tipping it over. Hey, Pike, look at this. Pike looked down at the, ho at the hollow thump as the loot case fell flat against the ground. What did you steal, Nalt? I didn't steal it. One of the boys holding my arms laughed. Yeah, your uncle gave it to you so you could sell it to buy medicine for your sick grandma. He laughed again while I tried to blink the tears out of my eyes. I heard three clicks as the latches were undone. Then came the distinctive harmonic thrum as the loot was taken out of its case. Your grandma is going to be mighty sorry you lost this, Nalt. Pike's voice was quiet. 
Telu, crush us, the boy on my right exploded. Pike, you know how much one of them's worth? Gold, Pike. Don't say Telu's name like that, said the boy on my left. What? Do not call on Telu save in greatest need, for Telu judges every thought and deed, he recited. Telu and his great glowing penis can piss all over me if that thing isn't worth twenty talents. That means we can get at least six from Daikin. Do you know what you can do with that much money? You won't get the chance to do anything with it if you don't quit saying things like that. Telu watches over us, but he is vengeful. The second, boy, second boy's voice was reverent and afraid. You've been sleeping in the church again, haven't you? You get, you get religion like I get fleas. I'll tie your arms in a knot. Your ma's a penny whore. Don't talk about my mom, Lynn. Iron pennies. By this time, I had managed to blink my eyes free from the tears, and I could see Pike squatting in the alley. He seemed fascinated by my loot. My beautiful loot. He had a dreamy look in his eyes as he held it, turning it over and over in his dirty hands. A slow horror was dawning on me through the haze of fear and pain. As the two voices grew louder behind me, I began to feel a hot anger inside. I tensed. I couldn't fight them, but I knew if I got hold of my loot and made it into a, a crowd, I could lose them and be safe again. But she kept humping away anyway. But now she only got a half penny a throw. That's why your head is so soft. You're lucky you don't have a dent. So don't feel bad. That's why you get religious so easy. The first boy finished triumphantly. I felt only a tenseness on my right side. I tensed too, ready to spring. But thanks for the warning. I hear Tellu likes to hide behind big clumps of horse shit, and the suddenly both of my arms were free as one boy tackled the other into the wall. I sprinted the three steps to Pike, grabbed the loot by the neck, and pulled. But Pike was quicker than I had expected, or stronger. The loot didn't come away in my hand. I was jerked to a halt, and Pike was pulled to his feet. My frustration and anger boiled over. I let go of the loot and threw myself at Pike. I clawed madly at his face and neck, but he was a veteran of too many street fights to let me get close to anything vital. One of my fingernails tore a line of blood across his face from ear to chin. Then he was against me, pressing my, me back until I hit the alley wall. My head struck brick, and I would have fallen if Pike hadn't been grinding me into the crumbling wall. I gasped for breath, and only then realized I'd been screaming all the while. He smelled like old sweat and rancid oil. His, eye, his hands pinned my arms to my sides as he pressed me harder into the wall. I was dimly aware that he must have dropped my loot. I gasped for breath again and flailed blind me. I, knocking my head against the wall again, I found my face pressed into his shoulder and bit down hard. I felt his skin break under my teeth and tasted blood. Pike screamed and jerked away from me. I drew a breath and winced at a tearing pain in my chest. Before I could move or think, Pike grabbed me again. He bludgeoned me up against the wall once, twice. My head whipsawed back and forth, caroming off the wall. Then he grabbed me by the throat, spun me around, and threw me to the ground. That's when I heard the noise, and everything seemed to stop. After my troop was murdered, there were times when I would dream of my parents, alive and singing. In my dream, their deaths had been a mistake, a misunderstanding a new play they had been rehearsing, and for a few moments I had relief from the great blanketing grief that was constantly crushing me. I hugged them and we laughed at my foolish worry. I sang with them, and for a moment everything was wonderful. Wonderful. But I always woke up alone in the dark by the forest pool, 
What was I doing out here? Where were my parents? Then I then I would remember everything, like a wound ripping open. They were dead, and I was terribly alone. And that great weight had been lifted for just a moment, uh, that had been lifted for just a moment, would come crushing down again. Worse than before, because I wasn't ready for it. Then I would lay on my back, staring into the deep dark, sorry, staring into the dark with my chest, I read a word from below, uh, staring into the dark with my chest aching and my breath coming hard, knowing deep inside that nothing would ever be right ever again. When Pike threw me to the ground, my body was almost too numb to feel my father's loot being crushed underneath me. The sound it made was like a dying dream, and it brought that same sick, breathless ache to my chest. I looked around and saw Pike breathing heavily, clutching his shoulder. One of the boys was kneeling on the chest of the other. They weren't wrestling anymore. Both were looking in my direction. I stared numbly at my hands, bloody where slivers of wood had pierced the skin. Little bastard bit me, Pike said quietly, as if he couldn't quite believe what had happened. Get off me, said the boy lying on his back. I said you shouldn't say those things. Look what happened. Pike's expression twisted and his face went a livid red. Bit me, he shouted and swung a vicious kick at my head. I tried to get out of the way without doing any more damage to the loot. His kick caught me in the kidney and sent me sprawling into the wreckage again, splintering it even further. See what happens when you mock Talu's name? Shut, about, shut up about Talu. Get off me and grab that thing. It might still be worth something to Daikin. Look what you did, Pike continued to howl above me. A kick caught me in the side and rolled me halfway over. The edges of my vision started to darken. I almost welcomed it as a distraction, but the deeper pain was still there, untouched. I balled my bloody hands into stinging fists. These knob things are st still seem okay. They're silvery. I'll bet we can get something for them. Pike pulled back his foot again. I tried to put up my hands to keep it away, but my arms just twitched, and Pike kicked me in the stomach. Grab that bit over there. Pike! Pike! Pike kicked me in the stomach again, and I vomited weakly onto the cobblestones. You there! Stop! City watch! A new voice shouted. A heartbeat of stillness was followed by a scuffle and a flurry of pattering feet. A second later, heavy boots sounded again, sounded past, sorry, Heavy boots pounded past and faded into the, in the distance. I remember the ache in my chest. I blacked out. I was shaken out of the darkness by someone turning my pockets inside out. I tried unsuccessfully to open my eyes. I heard a voice muttering to itself, Is this all the thanks? Uh, this, is this all I get for saving your life? Copper and a couple shims? Drinks for an evening? Worthless little sod. He coughed deep in his chest, and the smell of stale liquor washed over me. Screaming like that? If you hadn't sounded like a girl, I wouldn't have run all this way. I tried to say something, but it dribbled out as a groan. Well, you're alive. That's something, I suppose. I heard a grunt as he stood up, then the heavy thumping of his boots faded away into silence. After a while, I found I could open my eyes. My vision was blurry, and my nose felt larger than the rest of my head. I prodded it delicately. Broken. Remembering what Ben had taught me, I pulled one hand, I put one hand on each side of it and twisted it sharply back into place. I clenched my teeth against the cry of pain and my eyes filled with tears. I blinked them away and was relieved when I saw the street without the painful blurriness of a moment ago. 
The contents of my small sack lay next to me on the ground, a half ball of string, a small dull knife, rhetoric and logic, and the remainder of a piece of bread the farmer had given me for lunch. It seemed like forever ago. The farmer. I thought of Seth and Jake, soft bread and butter, songs while riding in the wagon, their offer of a safe place, a new home. A sudden memory was followed by a sudden sickening panic. I looked around the alley, my head aching from the sudden movement. Sifting the garbage with my hands, I found some terribly familiar shards of wood. I stared at them mutely as the world darkened imperceptibly around me. I darted a look at the stri thin strip of sky visible overhead and saw it purpling into twilight. How late was it? I hurried to gather my possessions, treating Ben's book more gently than the rest, and limped off in what I hoped was the direction of Seaward Square. The last of twilight had faded from the sky by the time I found the square. A few wagons rolled sluggishly among the few straggling customers. I limped wildly from corner to corner of the square, searching madly for the old farmer who had given me a ride, searching for the sight of one of those ugly, knobby squash. When I finally found the bookstore Seth had parked beside, I was panting and staggering. Seth and his wagon were nowhere to be seen. I sank down into the empty space their wagon had left and felt the aches and pains of a dozen injuries that I had forced myself to ignore. I felt them out, one by one. I had several painful ribs, although I couldn't tell if they were broken or if the carriage was torn or, or if the cartilage was torn. I was dizzy and nauseous when I moved my head too sorry when I moved my head too quickly, probably a concussion, my nose was broken, and I had more bruises and scrapes than I could conveniently count. I was also hungry. The last being the only thing I could do anything about, I took what was left of my piece of bread from earlier in the day and ate it. It wasn't enough, but it was better than nothing. I took a drink from a horse trough and was thirsty enough not to care that the water was brackish and sour. I thought of leaving, but it would take me hours of, hours of walking in my current condition. Besides, there was nothing waiting for me on the outskirts of the city except miles upon miles of, harvests, of harvested farmland, no trees to keep the wind away, no wood to make a fire, no rabbits to set traps for, no roots to dig, no heather for a bed. I was so hungry my stomach was a hard knot. Here, at least, I could smell chicken cooking somewhere. I would have gone looking for the smell, but I was dizzy and my ribs hurt. Maybe tomorrow someone would give me something to eat. Right now I was too tired. and wanted nothing more than to sleep. The cobblestones were losing the last of the sun's heat, and the wind was picking up. I moved back into the doorway of the bookshop to get out of the wind. I was almost asleep when the owner of the shop opened the door and kicked at me, telling me to shove off or he'd call the guard. I limped away as quickly as I could. After that, I found some empty crates in an alley. I curled up behind them, bruised and weary. I, I closed my eyes and tried not to remember what it was like to go to sleep warm and full, surrounded by people who loved you. That was the first night of nearly three years I spent in Tarpeen. That'll be where we end today. <sighs> Rough start to things. He lost his father's loot. Couldn't be a more, more painful way to start the day, to start three years in Tarbine. Well, it's interesting about the four doors, 
the door of sleep, the door of forgetting, the door of madness, and finally the door of death. Huh. It makes sense. I wonder if it's pulled from something other than classical literature. I wonder if it's something more, more recent, but it sounds definitely more on the ancient side of things. The way old knowledge works. Things that have been found true over the course of millennia. There are certain hard truths like that out in the world. If you listen, you can find them. They're the sort of things that wise people know. They're the sort of truths that hold up and keep you alive when things go wrong. Those are the sorts of things that wise people know. In any case, that'll be all for tonight. Good night.